Hi, I'm Anthony Fury. Thanks so much for joining us for the latest episode of Full Comment. What does it mean that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has invoked the Emergencies Act for the first time in Canadian history? Is it a justified move that is measured and proportionate to the issue at hand? Or is Trudeau merely stomping on civil liberties and trying to criminalize political opposition? Is Trudeau restoring democracy? Or is he harming democracy? You know, I'm not sure anyone can answer these questions definitively because we are in uncharted terrain. This has never happened before. But make no mistake about it. What's happening now in Canada is momentous and may shape how our democracy functions for years to come. To help us wade through all of this right now, we're joined now by a constitutional law expert, Ryan Alford, who is a professor at the Bor-Alaskan Faculty of Law at Lakehead University. Welcome, Ryan. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Anthony. And I agree, this is quite momentous. Yeah, I, I mean, am I, am I overstating things to say that how we deal with this right now uh, may determine how Canada functions as a, as a government, as a democracy, as a G7 nation for, for some time? Not at all. And the window into this is to remember that the Emergencies Act is the replacement for the War Measures Act. This is War Measures Act 2.0. And what happened in Canada after the War Measures Act was invoked is still resonating today. We have a separatist party that essentially holds the balance of power in our parliament. Quebec separatism is the dominant political uh, mode in the province of Quebec provincially. And there's this incredible lack of understanding between the French Canadian and English Canadian points of view. And if you take a look at the license plates in Quebec and they say, je me souviens, one of the things they remember is tanks on the streets of Montreal, people being rounded up in the middle of the night um, on the basis of a pretext, which tied the specific acts the government was concerned about with a broader ideology. And that's what we have to be concerned about today. So basically something that took place decades ago, still resonating today. Right. And the question is how the public reacts to it. Uh, Eventually, there was great revolt towards the War Measures Act. And that's what led to its replacement with the Emergencies Act, which is meant to be far more difficult to invoke. And when we get into the weeds here, we'll see that there's actually no jurisdictional basis for bringing it in, which makes it perhaps even more troubling than the War Measures Act, because not only is it a case of it being used to suppress civil liberties, it may in fact be being brought in in an unconstitutional Wow. Okay. And I want to do a deep dive into all of that stuff. But first, I I guess I got to ask, how bad can things get? Because whether it was the press conference announcing this, uh, where Justin Trudeau, Christy Freeland, David Lametti, the justice minister, got up at the podium and said, okay, we're invoking this act, or whether it's Trudeau's speech uh, in the House of Commons on Thursday morning, uh, affirming, yeah, I'm totally with him. I write to this. Ah, Don't worry. No civil liberties violations. It's all going to be totally fine a number of people stepping forward to say, well, hold on a second. This is kind of murky waters. I mean, when we say that this is War Measures Act 2.0, I mean, what 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 can happen here? Let, let me give like a, a an extreme scenario. So I, I, by some reading of it, they're talking about prohibiting public assemblies, uh, anything sort of to do uh, with the anti-mandate protests. Then they're talking about directing the banks to, to seize various assets. I mean, is it, is it conceivable, Ryan, that if the government said, okay, here's a day pro- protester who showed up for just two hours to wave the flag, they're not a trucker, they're not part of the convoy, but they were there. Maybe they tossed $2 in a hat uh, to support the movement or what have you. Could could their bank account be frozen? Could they have an issue with their mortgage because of what's happened? Brand of the debanking provisions contemplated by this act are so broad that a an expert in this area, Professor Paul Daly, he commented that it's possible that a clerk at the Quickie Mart who sells a canister of propane 
to a protester could fall under the label of designated person and be debanked. Wow. Wow. I mean, there's a headline at the Financial Post right now. Banks get Ottawa protesters' names as financial crackdown gets underway. And, you know, we've got people out there saying, and, and we'll talk about this further in a moment. Okay, there's some people with YouTube videos out there saying they want to overthrow the government and so forth. Okay, yes, there are. But then what do you mean when you say the phrase protesters? Because there's also really tens of thousands of people of all walks of life, political views, uh, you know, all different backgrounds who are going to Ottawa or they've gone to sort of similar protests in Toronto to say I'm against the mandates. I mean, are we just talking about the few uh, overthrow the government YouTube guys or are we talking about everyone else too? I mean, I guess I take from your point about the guys selling the uh, propane, the dragnet can, uh, can go quite wide problem is that they acknowledge in this declaration that not everyone at the protest has this ideology, but everyone is tainted by association, often multiple mm. steps removed. So the analogy that I use is this. At every left-wing protest that I ever attended, there's invariably a splinter communist group, invariably, sometimes several, International Socialist, a Workers' World Party, Communist Party of Canada, Marxist-Leninist. These are organizations that are explicitly dedicated to the overthrow of constitutional government. And they're kind of tolerated at the protest, selling their newspapers, and, you know, having their particularly strange signs. Um, it's, it's ridiculous to say that when you're having some of the largest protests in world history, for instance, those that were um, right before the invasion of Iraq uh, all around the world in 2003, right. that the mere presence of a tiny splinter group at that protest somehow defines the ideology of the protest. And, and this, the debanking measures, don't make that distinction. It's participating in the protest, which is tainted by association, sometimes multiple steps removed, which makes pers a person a designated person under that incredibly broad umbrella that would catch clerks at uh, the quickie. And, and here's something, you know, very interesting. It's not just that the Emergencies Act uh, allows this to potentially happen. So, you know, maybe Justin Trudeau is going to think about using it, but we're not coming to that bridge yet, et cetera. No, apparently the banks have already been on phone calls with people senior in the government. Bank executives have been speaking to the government saying, okay, what do we do? How does this work? I want to read a little bit from a Bloomberg news story here that came out the other day. Uh, the banks may be concerned about running afoul of the government if they don't do the job well and some transaction slips through that later uh, that later on bites them. That concern could prompt them to overreact. Wow. I mean, this is the, one of the top financial news agencies in the country saying, yeah, this stuff is happening. And the deputy prime minister said in the House of Commons in this debate that, oh, well, don't worry. If something happens, there'll always be legal recourse for people who are caught up in this. Well, I'm sorry. The emergency declarations explicitly state that there's immunity from liability for this. So if a bank overreacts, and someone isn't doesn't even meet that incredibly broad umbrella. Just, there's a, a, a mix-up with respect to names. Someone effectively has their credit history ruined for years to come. The banks can just point to the fact that they received in advance immunity from liability under the emergency. All right, let me ask a kind of far out there question. A lot of these people protesting, they've had banners that say F Trudeau on them. Clearly there are people who are, most of them are allied in being upset with the mandates, but a lot of them are just upset with the prime minister as well. And they would be politically opposed to him, regardless of uh, how, how nice or rude their language is. To say that this is not, I know Trudeau's using the word targeted, but to what we've just established, this is not targeted. I mean, is this something of a, of a political enemies list that's been cobbled together here? There's no other way to interpret this. I would just say that 
there's this notion now of anti-government extremism that the, by, by saying you do not agree with the government, you're somehow in this shadowy category of people who are deemed to be ideologically motivated extremists. That's the terminology that's creeping into Canadian law. Well, unfortunately, that's completely at odds with the way that we think about freedom of speech. So just in the constitutional jurisprudence of the Supreme Court of Canada, you have this notion that there is some degree of spectrum between low-value speech and high-value speech. The low-value speech includes things like advertising products towards children who cannot make rational decisions. They can't really distinguish truth from fantasy. You're selling cocoa puffs to a five-year-old, very low-value speech. Now, within that hierarchy, criticism of the government is the highest-value speech because that is what freedom of speech exists to protect. That's why we have freedom of speech explicitly to allow people to criticize the government. Now people who exercise that right, the question is whether or not we agree with the way that they're doing it, and if we don't, we put them into this very amorphous category, ideologically motivated violent extremists, motivated by anti-government Now, Professor Alford, when we hear Justin Trudeau say at the podium, say in the House of Commons, as he said multiple times, ah, don't worry, the charter still applies here. Obviously, yes, this falls under the charter. I'm not too sure what that means. Like he's saying that as if to say, well, don't worry, there won't be any charter violation. But to me, that's like saying uh, murder's illegal in Canada. There's not going to be any murders. And you're like, well, okay, that's not how that works. And then, of course, if there is a charter violation, then one, you know, raises your hand with the relevant bodies and says, I believe my charter rights have been violated. One seeks redress. But isn't the whole point of the Emergencies Act that, well, right now there's there's not really, I mean, there's not court orders to be issued. You can just kind of do it. Uh, To your point, there's that liability in case uh, mistakes are made. I, I mean, I think one is compelled, urged to follow the spirit of the charter. But if one feels one's charter rights are being violated uh, in this current moment, what real recourse does one have uh, to counter that? Just to your, your more general point, the reason why we have courts is because the government routinely violates the charter. And we need the courts to step in and say, yes, we understand that you think that this was a reasonable limitation on rights. It wasn't. So that- it kind of ignores the fact that the Constitution was set up to create this court supervision over constitutional adherence. But more importantly, with respect to the debanking in particular, getting that resolved through court action is going to be incredibly complicated. So what you put people in the position of is potentially losing their livelihood, losing their access to the funds that they have, losing their ability to participate in the economy, and then expecting this to be resolved by the banks. Well, I think People who've been victims of identity theft or have had their credit cards stolen, they know what that's like to try to accomplish in right. the best of times. And now when they've received this designation from the government as, you know, a persona non grata, somebody who is, you know, should be deemed outside of, uh, of legitimate society, what, what kind of conduct can they expect from the banks in that situation? Particularly if the banks are relying upon governmental regulations and indeed governmental largesse, when you have these institutions that are so regulated by the government that they really want to stay in the government's good books, to say that these are private actors um, that that can be be relied upon to act just in accordance with market forces is is really highly naive. One of the things that's interesting and concerning is that a lot of people made the remarks that maybe the government knows things that the public doesn't know, that the media doesn't know, and that when they further explain and, and are held to account as to why they've done this, things will make a bit more sense, that there's there's policing intel or what have you about serious, imminent 
uh, major national security things that are going to go down that they have to deal with. Uh, there is a document that has been released, a 14-page Emergencies Act explainer that I guess was put together, I'm not sure by what department, by the Justice Department. When they talk about what justifies uh, the financial ramifications that they have done here, the financial powers they've given themselves, they say, according to the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation's February 14th analysis of the data, dot, 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 and then I go on and I, I read more and I read further about it, and then there's something else about, they repeat, according to a CBC report, and that's it. I see no secret knowledge here. I see them saying... No, you're forgetting the fact that they refer to the hackers, right? Yeah. So this is not only embarrassing, it's shockingly poor. This is purportedly the official rationale, the explanation pursuant to the requirements set up in the Emergencies Act, that there be an explanation for why this is warranted. Right. It refers to news reports and it refers to hacked material for which there is absolutely no chain of evidence, none. Right. So if this was coming into a court of law, someone said, oh, well, you know, we found this on the internet and it appears that somebody is claiming credit for hacking it illegally from a database, I think the court would have something to say about that. Now, this is being used, in fact, to, uh, to invoke the replacement for the war measures. This is shocking. Now, I remember Michael Ignatieff, before he became liberal leader, he, he wrote a book called The Lesser Evil, which came out uh, a year or two after 9-11 attacks, talking about what are the things that are acceptable to do in the war against terror. And, and a number of people, and he was a thought leader on this, talking about the ticking time bomb scenario in terms of when it's acceptable to do waterboarding or other forms of torture. This was obviously a very controversial conversation debate at the time, but the ticking time bomb scenario says, okay, you know that there's this there's this bomb that's about to go off and it's going to kill hundreds of innocent people. You, de you know it's almost definitely happening and you know this guy, he knows stuff about it. He knows how to prevent it. This is the guy. What can you do to this guy? What is acceptable in this scenario? Very controversial and, and people had different opinions on that. But at least the scenarios that they were putting together in terms of like a civil liberties violation was a ticking time bomb scenario. And here it's just kind of like, what is the threat? After, uh, but when Justin Trudeau invoked the Emergencies Act, they'd already dealt with the border bridge blockade. Now all they have yep. is is really protests that they're not crazy about. One which is acutely frustrating and a public nuisance to many people in the city of Ottawa. Uh, you know, and I understand that some of the individuals are ne'er do wells, so you know maybe some crazy stuff is going to happen. But that's not a ticking time bomb scenario. Am I, am I right to say that, Professor? It depends on how you define the explosion of the bomb. So there's a line in this rationale, the official rationale required by the Emergency Act. The protests have become a rallying point for anti-government and anti-authority, anti-vaccination conspiracy and white supremacist groups throughout Canada and other Western countries. So essentially, mm -hmm. the argument is that this is creating a pole of attraction for some really problematic ideas. Right. And that is the harm that we need to address. Because as you know, all the other rationales have been knocked out economic damage of the blockades, the inability to enforce the law related to border crossing, all of this is gone. And now we have the fact that Ottawa is a rallying point for ideas we don't like. And that in fact should be disputed insofar as you can see that the leaders of the convoy have made great efforts to disassociate themselves from these ideas to the point where people of color have been welcomed and indeed platformed at these events, right? And, and that they've refuted the notion that somehow this is animated by white supremacist ideology. But even if this were true, the idea is because anti-government ideology is so dangerous, we can mm. deal with it the same way that we would deal with a ticking bomb. So there you have, you know, essentially an extremely low hurdle 
for any protest in the future being suppressed with what is effectively anti-constitutional measures. I mean, one thing when I see Trudeau speaking about this, when I see the various documents the government has released, I feel like they're really just using spin and some of the more excitable media reports to justify all of this. There's been amplification of this fellow, what is his name, Pat King, who's, I guess, one of the main people who is behind this overthrowing the government thing. But to your point, uh, when I have spoken to the, the formal organizers of the convoy, the people who had the, the who were representative of the GoFundMe, which became the Give, Send, Go, they were like, no, we can't stand this guy. This guy has nothing to do with us. We denounce him and so forth. He doesn't have anything to do with the money. I have no doubt this guy does have a few uh, followers out there who are very interested in what he has to say. Uh, but, you know, this was amplified as emblematic indicative of what everybody is doing out there. They seem to really want to take that ball and run with it. Again, when I see what the government is using as justification, I mean, they are, they're doing real cherry picking of, uh, of, of sort of, you know, theatrical media reports. Sure. And I mean, the left always complained that there'd be a massive protest against something like uh, a, a war and that the right wing media would pick out the representative. Communist Party of Canada Marxist-Leninist to do the stand-up in front of the camera. People would deceive over this, right? right? Well, this is not the media now, it's the government. And we look at Mario Mendicino. He was put on the spot about this, right? Because he drew some connections between arrests that were made in the vicinity of Coots and what was going on at that blockade, which of course was involved peacefully. And then Ottawa. What is the link between that occurring there, very tenuously to that element of this broader protest, what was the link between that and Ottawa? And he immediately backpedaled, which was very revealing because it shows they can't actually make a link to the convoy protest organizers in Ottawa. So instead, they just kind of used this very loose language of how it's providing, you know, um, it, it's essentially something that would be cheered on by people with whom we disagree. Let's take a pause, go to a break. We'll be back in just a moment with more full comment. Professor Ryan Alford, one thing that is striking about Justin Trudeau talking about invoking the Emergencies Act is he never really articulated what it was that they were going to do. I noticed he said, oh, these are targeted tools, they're time limited, so there you go. Just kind of trust me. I mean, should we have been expecting, should we demand a greater kind of, a greater sort of breaking down of what are you actually going to do with these things? Not only that, but why do you need them? But just with respect right. to what he's going to do, I think it's pretty clear that what he wants to do is to suppress the protest. And he's always said that these protests are illegal protests. This is really troubling. Yeah, has uh, that been no established yet? Yeah. Well, there's no such thing as an illegal protest. Protesting is constitutionally protected activity under Section 2C of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. You have freedom of assembly, which the courts have called freedom of speech in action. Individuals at protests may break the law but there is no such thing as an illegal protest. Hmm. If someone's involved in a conspiracy to do something like commit mischief, you can prosecute them for this. But what they're trying to do is to spread a message. And again, this rationale under the Emergencies Act, Section 58, for why they're exercising these powers of the Emergencies Act, makes it fairly clear that what they want to do is suppress a message, an anti-government message. So if that is the goal, and then these are the means, um, well, David Lametti is being clearer about what the means are achieving. He wants people to be afraid and to exist in a state of doubt as to whether or not their donations, uh. which are intended to promote a political message, will put them at the risk of being designated persons and being excluded from all economic activity by the bank. That, that was an incredibly chilling interview that he gave because that is the goal. 
I want to read to you a line from a news release that the government put out, actually from Public Safety Canada. It says, The public order emergency grants the government the authority to apply the following temporary measures, and this is the first one they list, regulating and prohibiting public assemblies, including blockades, other than lawful advocacy, protest, or dissent. And you read this and you're like, oh, okay, lawful advocacy is fine. All right, sounds good. But who is deciding what is prohibited and regulated? Who is deciding what is lawful advocacy or not? But it could be the court. And we have a process for this, right? You go to court and you apply for an objection. This is going on in Ottawa. The problem that the court has in this situation is that they need to, to assess the constitutionality of things that restrict that right. Right. So when you come in and you say they're breaking the law because they're in violation of municipal bylaw related to parking or noise or use of parks, the protesters then have the opportunity to say, well, the application of that law in this circumstance would actually be contrary to the charter if it's not deemed to be a reasonable limitation on our constitutionally protected right to assemble and to give voice to our speech. So then the court has to engage in this very delicate balancing act. And then what they do is they tailor the application of those laws so that people, for instance, aren't kept up at night with air horns, but that mm. the protesters are allowed to continue to spread their message by engaging in that constitutionally protected activity. So when we change the locus from the courts who are designated under the Constitution in order to apply the Constitution to the government just saying, well, okay, because someone's violating a bylaw, right, by parking on the street or you know, being where we now say they can't be, because you see, they can now make up new laws, right? They mm. can say that you're not allowed to be on Parliament Hill to protest, that this then becomes an illegal protest. That, that's that what the Emergencies no Act empowers them to do. That's what they can do Precise, because of the act. Okay. Precisely right. Yeah. Wow. So everything that, that the cabinet does pursuant to a public order regulation now has the force of law. It's a complete abdication of the power of Parliament to cabinet to evade political responsibility. So I think of that famous scene in the Frost, Frost uh, Nixon movie when he goes, if the president does it, it's not illegal. I mean, I feel like does the Emergencies Act at least temporarily, is that is that basically what this is saying now? Well, not exactly. And this is where people have a point uh, with respect to civil liberties. It's not that the charter does not apply. It's just that it will be moving so quickly, it'll be very hard to have any redress for right. what would ultimately in the final analysis be deemed to have violated the charter. But there's a more fundamental problem if the Emergencies Act doesn't have a rationale to be invoked, then every regulation being issued under it is unconstitutional, not because it violates the Charter, but because it violates the Constitution Act 1867's division mm. of powers. Um, so essentially, what you're doing in this situation, the, the, the convoy protesters, now the, the government has a way of spinning their goals and motivations, but when you look at what they're saying, a lot of them are trying to promote this fairly moderate message that they feel that their constitutional rights have been infringed, that their right. right to freedom of speech, et cetera, is now under threat, and they're concerned about this. And all these political actors, Scott Moe, Yves-Francois Blanchard, have said to the Prime Minister, do not pour oil on this fire. Right. What better way to pour oil on the flames than to use an unconstitutional measure to suppress protests that allege constitutional violations? And the, the interesting thing is, the consensus opinion, for the most part, although it's not unanimous, right. is that this is, in fact, a jurisdictionally effective and therefore unconstitutional. 
Wow. And yet, and I've seen those voices. I've seen the experts such as yourself and, and your colleagues in the broader sort of uh, constitutional uh, legal expertise community step forward and say, I don't think the threshold has been met. The Canadian Civil Liberties Association quite prominently put out that news release. That clearly didn't stop any of this. Quite remarkable. Uh, so in advance, the government has been forewarned that this is an unconstitutional measure. And they also know now that most of their rationale is gone. The notion that we need this to uh, promote law and order because the existing ability to promote law and order is insufficient is also gone. Why are they so determined to move ahead with this? Yeah. And what you normally are left with as someone who studied legal and constitutional history is the idea that they want to expand their powers, not just to deal with the present emergency, but to have a precedent for how they deal with future emergencies wow. or indeed things that they can label emergencies. It's really something, and what we've seen from Justin Trudeau for a while now is the attempt to to dehumanize the people who are participating in not just the most acute trucker convoy situation, but the broader social movement of people who are anti-mandate. Uh, we saw those infamous tweets that were talked about around the world, which I mean, he echoed them in the House of Commons as well, saying all these people here are, well, we heard the accept unacceptable views which kind of got kind of translated in the wash to unacceptable people. And then we heard that they are racist, sexist, uh, transphobic, Islamophobic. There's quite a laundry list. He pretty much threw all the words in there. I mean, was was that really setting the stage for saying, okay, well, these people are, you know, scum of the earth. So might as well just say, and you know, no laws are applying to these guys moving forward. Let's do what we can. It was even more candid in French. So huh. when he was going through that whole list, he ended with the rhetorical question, do we tolerate these people? As if a citizen's wow. rights have to be tolerated, their existence has to be tolerated, and that that's actually an open question. That is actually the hallmark of a totalitarian order. Now, I don't want to be alarmist here. It just, I mean, the mere fact that someone entertains that thought doesn't necessarily mean that we're on rails towards a particular political outcome. But it's extremely troubling, because again, this is connected to the notion of illegal protests, right? Protests that have an anti-government message are illegal. They're leading to bad social effects. So therefore, we've already deemed in advance that this shouldn't be tolerated because it leads to that bad outcome. But unfortunately, it's the process of public deliberation that's so essential to politics. You go back to Supreme Court opinions in the 1930s and 1940s, even before we had the charter, what the courts were saying, freedom of speech is the bedrock of a parliamentary democracy. If people don't have the ability to say what they want to say publicly, without repercussions, without sanctions, the entire democratic process is nullified. So what would be the basis for the government's authority in that situation? They're essentially destroying the foundation upon which they stand. I mean, one thing that's very interesting here, and the people who have stepped forward and said, what sort of precedent does this set? I know back in uh, in the in the 1990s, early 2000s, there was a, a series of eco-terrorism attacks in terms of bombings of, of pipelines in Alberta and in BC. Thankfully, we really haven't seen much of that for a number of years. But given what we've done now, bringing in the Emergencies Act for, for something where we have not seen any sort of significant acts of violence committed, we know people are very passionate about their environmental and green causes right now. Could a, a subsequent prime minister say, okay, there's, you know, two pipeline bombings within a, a month. All right, let's do this. Oh, and here's the list of anyone who's donated to this or that or the other. And I got 20, even though it's probably only one guy doing these bombings, here's here's 20,000 people uh, who, who I'm going to subject to these measures now. You know, um, I just need to refer to the United States here briefly. 
Um, when I started my career as a professor, I was working in the United States. And the, the real problems that we saw with respect to emergency powers related to the war on terror. And what happened in the war on terror was once a Democratic politician got into the presidency, Barack Obama, there was no longer any concern for the most egregious things that were happening, for instance, targeted killing. And I wrote this book that was trying to keep people's consciousness on this. It was called Permanent State of Emergency. Hmm. And I asked my publisher if I could have until Election Day 2016 to write the afterword. And they said, oh, absolutely, that's fine. Uh, and I thought I would just write something very kind of analogous about how we need to continue to be aware of you know, the dangers. Well, unfortunately, that was the day that Donald Trump was elected. And it was really hard not to just say, I told you so, I told you so, I told you so, after times. But instead, what I said was, the, the, the separation of powers and all of these constitutional safeguards um, are like a bulldozer with various safety features. You strip off all these safety features, and then eventually some maniac climbs on board, and, well, there's nothing preventing him from steamrolling everything. Uh, well, people can't imagine this, right? I mean, everyone was so shocked that this, you know, um, buffoon that they never thought would be elected president would have control of all of those levers of power. So right now it's the Liberal Party. It's the party of government, sure. Um, people can't imagine um, Maxime Bernier being elected Prime Minister of Canada. Um, they can't imagine it, but history is long and, and winding. We do not want to have this sort of system in place just because we, we only trust one person or one political party. Um, I really have a sense, though, that um, people should be much more concerned with shifts in the political wind, given the rise of populism, which supposedly motivates all of it's the fear, it's this idea that populism is a real threat that means that we need to clamp down on anti-government viewpoints. Well, if you're really taking that threat seriously, you should be a lot more concerned with the erosion of these procedural safeguards. Yeah, one thing I find interesting is the invocation of the phrase slippery slope. And look, I, I certainly hope that the worst case scenarios that we've, we've painted uh, don't happen that Justin Trudeau doesn't choose to call for people to do this, uh, call for the government to do these things, seizing people's property and, and so on. But I mean, are we at a slippery slope or are we just sliding rapidly down the hill right now and the brakes aren't really working? I almost think we're beyond invoking that tired phrase. Like we're, we're, in, we're in the trouble spot. We are. I mean, we have right now the open contemplation of commandeering, not merely vehicles to tow big rigs, but essentially conscripting people to do it on pain of law, hmm. that a public order regulation could say, you don't get behind uh, the wheel of your record, you could be sentenced to five years in prison, and using wow. that as a coercive threat. It's really hard to see that as not the end point, not the beginning of the slippery slope. I mean, this is, this is really troubling. And I would say, though, also the debanking, that essentially on the basis of the fact that we don't want people participating in society, that they're not people who's existence we should tolerate participating in society or spreading a message that we already know in advance is wrong, that we essentially make them non-persons financially. That's, that's happening. I'm getting cold calls at my office from people who are panicking over this. People wow. are losing their jobs already over $100 donations to what they thought was a peaceful protest. Because I've had people email me as well saying, you know, I give this $100 donation and they get some weird threat uh, sent to them via email because, of course, their information has been leaked. I, I want to ask you, Professor Alford, we're seeing already at Parliament Hill 
uh, barriers going up to stop people from getting on the grounds of Parliament Hill. And I, I take the point that they don't want the trucks to be able to go actually onto Parliament Hill right in front of the House of Commons. At the same time, we have always seen, and one thing that's very interesting about this is that the protest is mostly taking place on Wellington Street in front of the building, although people did go on the lawn uh, during the weekends when the larger numbers of people came in the day protesters. But I worry what it means to put up these, these barriers, these walls, stopping even just the individuals from walking on the lawns of Parliament Hill. I was speaking in number of years ago to the comedian Tom Green. It was not about politics, so I don't want to try and say he was commenting on political issues, but he grew up in the city of Ottawa, and he was speaking really fondly, I've never forgotten this anecdote, about how they would play soccer as, as teenagers on the on the green there, on the grass in front of Parliament Hill. And sometimes the RCMP, when it would get dark, would even turn on the headlights of their vehicles to give them uh, the floodlights for their soccer pitch. I just thought it was a really charming, you know, cute story about the city of Ottawa. But I, I think back on that a lot whenever people are like, how dare you this or that? And I'm like, well, I don't know. It's the people's green. And yet now we're setting an establishment where the people are going to be very afraid, potentially, of stepping foot on that green. Not only is the people's green to play soccer, it's explicitly the people's green to protest on. So if you listened in on this injunction hearing, which was held with respect to the Ambassador Bridge, Chief Justice Morowitz of the Superior Court of Justice of Ontario was doing an analysis of how you balance the constitutional rights of the protester uh, with respect to the law and all the various harms that ensued from blocking international border crossing. And he did the analysis the Supreme Court has worked out, which starts with this question of, is this the kind of place where we traditionally tolerate protests? Is this the place mm -hmm. to protest or is it not? Well, you know, international bridges, for the most part, no, right? So then the question is, very much with the same sort of question as the spectrum of high-value speech with low-value speech, what is at the highest end of the places where it is appropriate to protest? Squarely, Parliament Hill. Right. Exactly that. Has been for nigh on a century, right? And so now we say, well, you can't do that here, and then you clamp down on protesters because now they're doing it in a place where it's going to be more disruptive. For instance, Wellington Street, what happened? So essentially, it creates a catch-22. But really, it's this contempt for the notion that this place exists for the exercise of constitutional rights, which is very troubling. Just with respect to what you said about Tom Green in Ottawa, well, I grew up in Ottawa, too. Um, and I remember before 9-11, um, I used to cut across uh, a tunnel underneath the McDonnell-Cartier Bridge that sort of connects the Rideau Centre in Ottawa with the, the kind of the, the Ottawa City Hall Park. Right. Uh, and <laughs> that was closed off. Huh. Um, before that, I used to cut through the Department of National Defense. You would actually just walk through the lobby of the National Defense Headquarters. And hmm. again, Ottawa never really had any serious threat of terrorism at the time. Uh, and why would it, right. um, in my opinion, in my estimation? Looking back on this, we just think what well, it was out of an abundance of caution, right? That we're doing things but of this potential to prevent harm. But what's the actual harm here? When you do all of these things right. out of an abundance of caution, and this is a great allegory for the pandemic, are you ignoring the fact that all of these things collectively tend to create this chill that tend to make it almost impossible to protest, to participate in political activity, to, to, to put forward your viewpoint? And the unintended consequence of this is, well, when you marginalize all of these people, you create the kind of alienation that leads to extremism. And we've understood this dynamic clearly for decades. That if you push people out of the mainstream, if you label them as deplorable and not worthy of participating in society, those people will have no stake in the society. So we're creating the very dynamic that we're trying to prevent. And that's just out of an abundance of caution. But you, you can't think that these don't have effects. Yeah, I do, do think 
I do think the idea of precedent setting is is totally valid in that I, I remember when Stephen Harper was prime minister, there were complaints that omnibus bills got more, well, omnipresent. And we were seeing them more and more all the time, just packing a whole bunch of different issues into one piece of legislation. And the documents were ballooning uh, uh, such that various committees, parliamentarians didn't have time to adequately assess. And then uh, the the timing of the legislative session was such, now, come on, you got to pass this through, pass this through. And, and all the opposition leaders were like, this is just, you know, it's never how it's been done before. We shouldn't be doing it. And of course, now it is how it is done. Justin Trudeau uh, just does it that way. And he's normalized all of that. I, I have a uh, column headline, something I wrote in 2019. The headline was, the SNC-Lavalin affair is a small but real example of democratic backsliding. I was complaining about that 10-second conversation with Jody Wilson-Raybould that actually could have much longer uh, ramifications where he you know, wrongly pressures her to drop charges against SNC-Lavalin, sort of breaking that firewall. Will that be normalized? And, and calling that, you know, democratic backsliding. I mean, to what degree, when we look at that, when we look at what Justin Trudeau's done right now, I mean... Okay, to put a big picture, you know, we used to say in the 90s, don't worry, China's going to become more like us soon. Increasingly, people are saying, well, hold on a second. Are we more becoming like these other countries that we don't want to head in that direction? The pandemic was certainly inspirational for a lot of people. They looked at what's going on in China and said, well, why aren't we doing this? Yeah. Because the idea is that the, you know, the, the elite uh, understand what needs to be done and the hoi polloi need to merely obey. And with respect to uh, Trudeau, I would also say now it's Trudeau and David Lametti, right? Hmm. Who is David Lametti? He's essentially the person who fulfilled the role of the hatchet man, right? Who came in and took right. over this, this poison chalice after the prime minister violated the Shawcross Convention. Right. And um, his lawyers did something that would probably, in other circumstances, subject them to professional regulation and discipline. Huh. Um, really quite shocking that this person, who came in to play that role is now the person who's going on television acting as if debanking people on the basis of their political opinions isn't a huge threat to you know political activity in Canada. But again, if you think that Canada should admire China's basic dictatorship, um, you don't really see a problem with this. But this is the style of hope that you determine in advance what the desired outcome is. And when people try to share their views, you determine also in advance whether or not those are part of the acceptable um, uh, mainstream discourse. And if they're not, you just exclude them. That's just not how the democratic process is supposed to work. And it actually vitiates the constitutional authority of the government to do so, because it rests upon a fulsome conception of democracy. Professional regulation, discipline. Let's talk about what happens if it is determined weeks later that what has gone on with the Emergencies Act was a char charter violation, was an overstep, was not appropriate, because I understand that there does have to be uh, some sort of parliamentary committee that looks into its usage, uh, that is mandated, that is regulated. Are, are there actually any meaningful tools, aside from the Prime Minister going out and doing one of his speeches where he talks about how this is a learning opportunity for all of us? I'm really curious as to whether or not they're just going to allude to evidence that they don't allow us to see. Because this Can they has do been that? the pattern. Well, this has been the pattern so far. I mean, uh, look at the contempt of Parliament, and I, I'm using that in a technical sense. There was a contempt of Parliament over the refusal of Public Health Affairs Canada to turn over documents to Parliament itself related to the Winnipeg lab and this really troubling incident of materials being smuggled out of the Winnipeg lab to another facility in actually in Wuhan, China, um, that the government was willing to engage in contempt of Parliament at a remarkable level, right? at the level where the head of PHAC was brought to the bar of the House of Commons and publicly censured, when Parliament was considering sending the sergeant-at-arms of the House of Commons to PHAC to obtain those documents. 
These are things that haven't been done since the 19th century, right? And then the solution to this crisis, according to the government, is to force the discussion of the secret material into a committee called the National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians. Right. In which, and this is the subject of a constitutional challenge, in which the parliamentarians in that body, the senators and the members of Parliament, if they go back to Parliament and say on the floor of the House of Commons or in a committee meeting of the House of Commons or the Senate, they are subject to prosecution under the Security of Information Act. That is the level of control of information that's typical of this government. It's worse than the Harper government. So the idea that they would just make allusions to documents and then say, well, we can't tell you about you know, all the super secret stuff that allowed us to conclude that there was a, a white nationalist insurrection in the making. Um, by the way, um, this is another parallel to the War Measures Act, right? Because the jurisdictional basis for the invocation of the War Measures Act was not what the FLQ was doing in terms of criminal activity, but the apprehended insurrection in a broader sense, huh. student activists and labor union activists to overthrow the government of Robert Barassa, right? And it turned out much, much later that there was simply no basis for that at all. But the government, of course, could refer to all of these, you know, secret investigations. Um, and then it only took years and years to uncover, and this is a report from the Donald Commission, that the RCMP had ginned up quite a lot of it. Um, but this is the thing that you don't find out about if the government can make these claims to keep these documents secret for a certain number of years. Okay, Ryan, to your point about uh, writing that afterward to your book that you were talking about, let's write the afterward to this right now, or at least try and do a first draft of it. Uh, you referenced earlier on that, of course, Emergencies Act is is sort of a replacement of the War Measures Act after the controversies emerged of, boy, we shouldn't have done this in the first place. What do we do as the afterward here? This has been done. A lot of people unhappy with it. Many experts saying it's not justified. When this is all wrapped up, what do we do? have to decide fundamentally as a society whether or not we believe in constitutional governance. We can either conclude that necessity creates the basis of law and that necessity can be judged by the sovereign. And whenever they decide that a state of exception exists, they can merely override all the laws in the constitution itself. Or we can say that all authority is derived from the constitution. And there's really no daylight between those two positions. You don't get to say, well, there's a third position in the middle. It's either the government can openly, transparently, and publicly justify why its exercise of power is in accordance with our constitutional text. Or we can let them to do end runs because they frightened us into believing that that's necessary and that necessity is effectively more important than the Constitution itself. So we have to actually make a very hard look and say which state of affairs will we tolerate and will we tolerate certain risks in order to say that we live in a free and Ryan, can we and should we get rid of the Emergencies Act? When it was drafted as a replacement for the War Measures Act, it looked as if the jurisdictional hurdles in it were so high that it would be reserved only for a situation where there'd be no argument. <laughs> and we never could have I imagined. Can't help but laugh. Yes. Clearly, that's not happening. Oh, you have five premiers, right, openly contesting this fact. You have Scott Moe imploring members of parliament not to invoke it. This is, this is a man who had blockades, you know, ditto Jason Kenney, just ditto the premier of, of, of Quebec, it's remarkable. There's obviously an argument as to whether or not it's um, reasonably justifiable in this situation. But we never thought that would be the case because we thought, well, after what we saw in the War Measures Act, we would have learned our lesson. But the problem is 
people do not have that kind of historical memory. They don't remember tanks in the streets of Montreal. They don't have a relative necessarily who could tell them how frightening it was to see this, and to worry about soldiers coming to your residence at two in the morning because you're a student activist and hauling you off to jail with no due process. Wow. They don't have that historical memory. So unfortunately, we can't rely on that as a check on the, on the emergency powers of this nature. At this point, it's just like Chekhov's gun. If you see it hanging on the wall, you know it's going to be used in the third act. So I think it's time for us to get rid of it once and for all. Buckle up, Canada. We're up for a bumpy ride. Professor Ryan Alford, thanks so much for joining us. Great insights, great details. Much appreciated. My great pleasure, Anthony. Thank you. All the best. Full Comment is a post-media podcast. I'm Anthony Fury. This episode was produced by Andre Pru, with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. You can subscribe to Full Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and Amazon Music. You can listen through the app or your Alexa-enabled devices. You can help us by giving us a rating or a review, and by telling your friends about us. Thanks for listening.